0: We're going to take a look at one metaphor from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and that is the Bride of Christ. Paul, when writing Ephesians, wrote it to a church to explain to them what the church is, the goal of the church, the identity of the church. Uh, The first three chapters are his doctrinal teaching. The fourth, four, five, and six are his application. But in the midst of that book, he put many different metaphors about what the church. And if you think about those metaphors, you get an idea of the church. For instance, I I put down some of them for you. It's a new humanity where Christ has taken two people that were at enmity with one another, Jews and Gentiles, and he has joined them together into one body. And they exemplify that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, your background, as you become part of the church, you join in with people who are far different, but who are very similar to you because they have the same Christ, the same Savior, the same Spirit, all the rich inheritance and blessings that God gives. And for instance, that's what would bring us around this table. And give us a unity that we would never have. Okay? I mean, you're dealing with a guy who's 67 years old. I'm old enough to be your grandpa. I've got kids older than you. And there would be no reason to do this, except we're in Christ. Uh, The one we want to take a look at, or the other one I like, is the new wardrobe in the fourth chapter, where he talks about taking off the old person, the way you used to be before you came to Christ, renewing your mind. And that is by, by reading, by thinking, by meditating, you change your mind about things and then you put on the new person, the new person whose, whose image is exactly like Jesus Christ. And he's saying, that's your, that's your life. You need to be doing that, and you need to have uh, a life that's changing in that way. What I really appreciate is that whole idea is not something that's simply done to you, but it's something you've got to think about, something you have to work at, something you have to meditate on. Okay. Today we're going to take a look at the new bride, and that's from Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 21 down through 33 and what brave soul would like to read it if you read this one you don't have to read any others so I'll, okay go ahead 54, 4, nope nope it's, ephesians 5. 21 we'll get to if we'll get to isaiah don't worry <laughs> We do have an outline, but I've been known to not follow the outline, and this is one of the times this this section comes a little bit further. This Ephesians passage is talking about relationship between a husband and wife. It's in what is sometimes called the household discussion of Paul, where he's talking about how a household in his time worked, husband and wife, parents and children slaves and masters or employers and employees because many times it was the household that had employees. And what he, what Paul is doing is primarily speaking about what it is to live in a marriage, husband and wife. Uh, that's the earthly side of this. Now, I also realize that some of the things he says are not politically correct in our day and age and have been taken the wrong way. Some who say, well, the wife is to be subject to her husband, which means that she's like a piece of cattle or she's like cattle or like a piece of, of uh, furniture that he can do anything he wants with. And that's not what Paul is saying. And I also know in our time that people have been raised in households like that, where it has been misused. And therefore, in doing that and saying that, I realize you may have to jump over some of the hurdles you have of the family and what he's talking about. Uh, What he's really talking about is the ideal. It's a reality, and it can be a reality. It's the ideal that you put out in front of people to reach for, but you know that in every sense, Any household is dysfunctional because each one of us sins. Peg and I have a good marriage, but we're still dysfunctional. No, I'm sorry. She's dysfunctional. No, 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 no. (laughs) Take that off.
1: (laughs) We came at just the right time. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) No, every household, because we are sinners, is not perfect. It's not the ideal. There are problems with it, and it will always be that way. But the idea is to set out the ideal, and this is the way it ought to be. That's one level, earthly. But all of a sudden, in the midst of this passage, Paul turns around and says it's more than husband and wife because he says the wife is like the church who's called to submit to Christ. Husband is like Christ who loves the church. And you get down to verse 31 and 32, and he takes his apostolic license, and he quotes in 31, Genesis 2, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if you read Genesis 2, and you read that passage, you'd kind of be shaking your head, Paul, how do you find Christ in the church in that passage? Well, he's an apostle, special envoy, given the Holy Spirit. He interprets it the way as the Spirit helps him to interpret because he's an apostle. He has that right. I don't have that right, no, none of you are apostles. I I can see that by looking at you. That's right. You got it. <laughs> so you don't have the right. But what an apostle, when he quotes the Old Testament, gives the, the, the accurate interpretation of that passage. But amazing. The, the, almost the gist of this passage is, is as much Christ in the church as it is husband and wife. There's that vertical, spiritual aspect to it. Now, you may think Paul is a smart guy, and he was. He had two PhDs. He was one of the uh, smartest guys of his time. But he didn't get this idea out, uh, just pull it out of the air. He actually borrowed an Old Testament image and metaphor. And that's what we're going to look at the next couple passages. So, Isaiah 54, 4 to 8. Someone want to read it? Okay. It's found in a part of Isaiah that is talking about the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Beautiful image of Christ uh, talking about him. But it's also a passage that talks about why they're going through tough times. Why is Israel being surrounded by enemies or being harassed by their enemies? And he basically says, why did you desert me? Lord looks at him and says, why have you left me? It says, you've been rebellious. You have been fornicating with other countries, with other gods. That's why you're in trouble. But, and that's a beautiful three-letter word, but, <laughs> I, the, your maker is your husband. I have been grieved. You seemed as if you were deserted. But what's he say? Like a wife of youth when she's cast off, but I will bring you back. I will have compassion upon you as a husband does with a wife, even if she has failed. That's a kind of compassion. That's one of them. A little bit further on, Isaiah 62, 1 to 5.
2: For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight in her in your land married for the lord delights in you and you shall be called married or you shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you
0: okay this passage is found after isaiah 61 62 comes after 61 right lisa did when i was studying math 61 is a passage Jesus used to talk about his own ministry when he was at his home, ter- home synagogue. And he opened it up to 61. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities. And he talks about Jesus says, and now in your sight, this has been fulfilled. I am this person, I'm doing this. But they'd also remember the 62nd chapter where he talks about you are gonna become the crown of beauty. You're gonna be the diadem that's in my hand, the crown in my hand. You once were called forsaken, now you're going to be called my delight. Your land married because you and I will be married. God and his people will be married. And it says, God shall rejoice over you. The idea of rejoice is dancing. So the image you get in your mind is when God gets with his people, he dances over them. Not a slow waltz. This is a a, a dance of exuberance. It's the idea, this is how your God is with you. He dances over you. He dances with you. He dances until you're exhausted. And he's still going strong. Yeah, yeah. Because he's got all power. He never loses energy. Uh, That's the image. that the New Testament talks about between God's people and himself. They're married, he's a husband, they're the wife. I gave you a, a third one, Hosea 1-3, to we're not gonna read that, we'll read part of it later. But the whole idea of those three chapters is Hosea is commanded by God to go marry a prostitute, which for him being a priest was absolutely forbidden but he has to do it. And then she goes back to her trade. Even though they have married and had a few sons, she goes back to her trade, and at the end, he has to go down to the selling block, the slave block, and purchase her back. And it's an illustration of what God is willing to do for us. Slaves, he purchases us back. Then there's Ezekiel 16. That's a long chapter too. Let me give you just a, a glimpse of it. Uh, God is talking about how he has acted toward Israel. He found Israel when it had just been born. Still with the umbilical cord, still with the blood. Nobody had cleansed, cleansed the people. So he went and he cut the cord. He cleansed them he gave them food. He set them up. It says later on he came and he found them when they had turned to the age of being married. And it says he he put his cloak over her, which was a sign of wanting to marry her, and brought her into his house. But just as Hosea is talking about it, and just as Isaiah found out, she commits Adultery before God not physical but spiritual she runs after other gods she goes after the gods of the people the gods of uh, that she makes up on her own and the gods of the nations who are attacking her and she finally moves into prostitution itself and he says I have no recourse but to let you go to send you out of the land And so he has Babylon come, pick up most of the people, take them out of the land into exile. Now, to them, the land was so sacred because God had given it to them. They thought, as long as we're in the land, we are in great shape. Peace, 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 because we're in the land. And they're taken out of the land, and they're going, what in the world's happening now? But the promise god gave is i will bring you back and you will be my wife and sure enough the end of 16 that promise is given and we know from jeremiah and from the history chapters that they do come back and god re-establishes the covenant with them and even a better covenant okay. that's the old testament image and there are others we could spend all night just looking at that, but then we wouldn't get to the good stuff. So, New Testament recaptures it. John three twenty nine to thirty. Who'd like to read that? Go ahead.
1: Yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent for him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must
0: increase, but I must decrease. Okay. Again, the context. Text without a context is a pretext. I gave you the context so you know. Leaders from Jerusalem had come down to John because he was baptizing so many and asked, who are you? And we've got to tell the boss. And he says, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I am simply the messenger. I'm the, vo- the one whose voice is crying in the wilderness saying, make way for the Lord. And they keep hounding him. And he finally comes out And he said, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. But the bridegroom's coming. Now, these leaders are good Old Testament scholars. Many of them had memorized all 39 books. We have trouble with four verses. They had memorized it. They knew the teaching of the Old Testament. And as soon as he says bridegroom, into their head comes this idea. Hold it. You're talking about God. Are you saying that you're not God, but God is coming? He says, yeah, that's basically what he's saying. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and I rejoice greatly when I hear his voice. Listen for it, it's coming. Then Mark 2, 18 to 22.
1: No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth from an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine wine, into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins.
0: Remember who said this? This is Jesus. So, Jesus is reiterating what, what the Old Testament says and what John the Baptist said, and he basically makes it clear I am the bridegroom. That's why my people are eating and they're not fasting. And again, the leader's going to go, their jaw goes slack, and they go, What? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? That's going on in their mind. They don't, at least it's not recorded what they talk about. But he says, I am the bridegroom and that last two verses, what's he saying is something new is taking place. You can't put something new on old, it won't work. Something new is gonna take place. In essence, he's saying, you just watch. You just see what goes on. It's coming. Well, they didn't like it, so. Eventually gets them in trouble. One more New Testament uh, passage, 2nd Corinthians. I for I one to you to Christ. Okay. This is the Apostle Paul. Different letter and what's he say I betroth you to one husband Christ again picking up that on what Jesus said what John the Baptist said what the old testament said what's his fear let us straight they're going to be exactly like Israel and they're going to start going after other gods and that's one of the reasons he wrote Corinthians was to keep them on the straight and narrow. I have betrothed you to the Lord. Betrothal back then was at least a whole year. It was a time of getting ready for the marriage ceremony, which lasted seven days. None of this one day and out. I mean, you partied for seven days. I, you know, if I, if I went back 40 some, 43 years I may try thinking about that. Let's party for a whole week. Come on. All the family gets here and it probably wouldn't work. My, my parents were workaholics. They wouldn't want to give up for seven days though. No. They, you, uh, you, you realize what, how important that is. And he's saying, I have betrothed you to Christ. You are in preparation time. Make sure you do it right is in essence what he's saying. So, what we're going to do is take a look at the uh, first Christ's action toward the church, and then we're going to turn around and take a look at church church's reaction to Christ. Okay? So the third point, Christ's action toward the church. Ephesians 25 to 27. Who'd like to read it again? Just so you get to hear it again. Who knows, by the time we're done, you may have it memorized. <laughs> Hopeful thinking. Right. Okay, st-
2: Husbands, love your wives and your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish.
0: Okay. When you, when you read the, uh, the scriptures, as, as you read most textbooks, but especially the scriptures, you're looking for the important words. Nouns, sometimes pronouns, sometimes adjectives. Here, it's the verbs. And there are bas- basically three tenses of verbs. There's a past tense where it says, he loved the church and gave himself up for her. The present tense where it says, he might sanctify her. And the future tense, where it says that he would present the church to himself in splendor. And that's three areas in which Christ is working with us and with with his church. First of all, Christ loved us. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you all recognize the immensity of Christ's love for you? Have you ever really thought about how well he loved? Go back to the first chapter of Ephesians. Verse three down through six. It goes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Before the, before the God ever said, let light be, he loved you. He knew you. He created a world and a time in which you live. He even gave you the parents and siblings or non-siblings that you have. And in Christ, he's given you what he said, every spiritual blessing
1: be there in verse
0: 6 says lavished. Lavished. Okay. He lavished on you. Have you ever had anyone lavish on you? I was at a, a retreat. Um, and they had a thing they called palanka. Palanka is a word of gifts. Love gifts. And every time we sat down at a table, there was another palanka there. Could be anything from a bag of chocolates to little notes to anything else, you know, a drink, whatever we needed. This happened for the whole weekend from people who didn't even know me. And they, and at the end of the weekend, we got together, and they came, and we got to meet each other. But they lavished their blessings upon us at that retreat, and we didn't even know them. Before the foundation of the world, God ravished His love on you, through Christ. Think of it every day. You wake up in the morning. Maybe you think it's too early in the morning, but you wake up. That's part of His love toward you. You drive around Dayton. And Dayton has some very silly drivers. (laughs) But you don't get in an accident. That's part of his love. You feel you're rejected by somebody. And the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to give you comfort, as only the Spirit can. Or somebody else comes next to you and listens to you talk. And that's the love of Christ. And that's just a little bit. It's an immeasurable love that Christ has for his people. Or as Jesus would say, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for others. The other part of that immensity of God's love is that Christ knows us. He knows us very well. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know about you. And yet he loves you. Even in your most despicable, horrible moments, he still loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. The word know in Scripture is not simply to be acquainted with. Hi, Jeff. I know you. We've met. (laughs) Now, it it means intimacy. It's a word that the Old Testament used for a husband knowing his wife. Again, it's not that they just met, but they've intimacy and a child is produced. They know the very depths of that other person, as much as one person can know another. That's the kind of knowledge. And with Christ, it's even deeper than that. You know, we think, well, I'll get away with this. God doesn't know. He knew you were gonna do that long before you knew you were gonna do that. And he did did not kill you. He ought to. If you sin, you are justly deserving death. Wages of sin is Death. death. But he doesn't. And the things not only you think you don't know, but the things you do that you're not even aware of, he knows, and he knew it from before the foundation of the world. I find that absolutely amazing because I have trouble loving my kids when they spill their cereal. <laughs> I love grandchildren. The kids are the problem, but. <laughs> But that's the kind of love he has for us. Says something about Christ's character. That he is deeply affected by our predicament. You know, God is not a God who simply sits back there and says, yeah, I see that, yeah, yeah. Or some who would point him kind of as being an absentee God and he looks down, sees something else, and oh man, I didn't see that one coming. No, he knew exactly what's taking place. He knows that we are sinners in the grasp of evil, under the wrath of his Father, and that's his anger. And that at that moment, under his anger, God doesn't love us fully. He loves us in the sense that he cares for us and watches over us. He loves us in the sense that we are in Christ, and one day we'll come to know that. But at those times, we're under his anger. And he has every right, as a potter does with any piece of clay, to destroy it. You ever have a friend who's in a relationship that's gone sour? Maybe you don't have friends. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want to do? Excuse me. Comfort them. Comfort them. <laughs> Excuse me. What was that? So
1: that I'll get them back. <laughs> get them back. <laughs> okay. Hey.
0: Yeah. You you do want to give you? Uh, I'm going to take out a revenge against what they did to you. I'll take out. You know. God does that. He did it to a lot of people. But you want to comfort? Sometimes you just want to sit with him because saying words means absolutely nothing. Or you just have to listen to him vent. Uh, we, have a, we have a child, a, a son. I can't call him a child, he's over 20. He gets into trouble, especially relational problems. He does it because of the way he acts and he calls us up and all he does for an hour is vent. We cook our cookies. We make our supper. We watch TV. We come back after an hour, and he's still finished. And he's done. He's, he's fine. No, I'm kidding. But that's, he, he needs somebody to listen to. Someone to hear him. Someone to show I care. That's exactly the way God is to us. He knows how bad our relationships are and he comes and he comforts us in his own way through the spirit, through the word, through other people. That's how much he loves us. Even though he has every right to throw us overboard and to tell us to get lost. That's it. Think about it tonight, how much Christ loves you, how good he's been to you, how kind God has been to you in your life. Yes ma'am. We have in our day a sense that God loves everybody equally and wonderfully and fully. But that's not exactly what the scripture says. It it does say God hates the sinner. God condemns the sinner. He loves them in the sense that he gives them things they don't deserve. For instance, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He gives them food to eat. He gives them money so they can buy clothes and not go around embarrassed. He gives them an education. And, you know, in this country, uh, he's given most people a lot of things. And in that sense, he does love. But in the sense of his eternal love or a love that rescues him, it is not shown until he exercises it to them. What they live under is his wrath. For instance, if you're really sensitive to what things you do, you will recognize the wrath of God on you. When I was growing up, I w- my nickname when I was growing up was Georgie Goody Two Shoes. Because I didn't get in trouble. I, I just, I was... And yet, there came a couple times when I remembered things I did that absolutely broke me. Um, when I was real young, I would steal money from my mother's purse to go buy matchbox cars. I didn't have to steal. If I had asked her, she said, Sure, here's a couple bucks, go buy a car. But it was a thrill of stealing. And I realized, what a rotten thing to do to my mother who was so kind. And I remembered other things. And all of a sudden, you get hit that you're living under the wrath of God, even though he's given you, out of his love, some things. He hasn't given you everything. He hasn't given you eternal life yet. Now, the moment you, you he gives you eternal life, the moment he gives to you the spirit, the moment he declares you righteous, you have his full love. He's no longer an enemy of yours. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation for they've been freed from the spirit of law to the spirit, uh, uh, by the spirit. And, you know, you can say, I'm a child. I've been adopted into the family. I'm one of his. He will not revoke that adoption, okay? We have three adopted children, biracial children when we were in New York City. When we went to the court, to the judge's chambers, and it was time to, for the adoption. She looked at Peg and I, and she said, "Are you sure you want to do this? Because when I sign this paper, there is no coming back. They are yours. They carry your name. They carry they. they get one seventh of my inheritance. That's a buck fifty. They, have, they, they are included as much as your natural children. They have every right to your natural children. And we said, yes, we're sure. Now we're not so sure. Now we said, yes, we're sure. She signed the papers, didn't even wrap the gavel. I was disappointed. She signed the papers, they're ours, and we love them. And they, they are part of the family. Imagine being part of God's family. And he says, I make a covenant with you. You are mine. I am yours. Nothing will destroy that. Whatever you do, nothing will destroy it. Why? Well, it comes up to the second point. He gave himself up for her. Thank you for the lead in. I really appreciate that. Does that answer your question? Okay. Okay. It's a different way of thinking about the love of God than most people in most of our culture has heard.
1: Now, uh, I know that individuals um, suffer from condemnation. From mm-hmm. time. Yeah,
0: good. Uh, I I say go back, think about the immensity of God's love for you. And think about what I'm about ready to talk about, (laughs) what we're (laughs) going to study. Because this really, this shows you why you should not, well, you you can condemn yourself, but you you can get out of condemning yourself. You condemn yourself because you're just not thinking right. We're not back to that put off, renew your mind, put on. Okay, the renewing the mind is still at work in that. Okay, I need someone to read Philippians 2, 5 to 10. If you have a paper Bible, it's just a couple pages over.
2: in the name of Jesus every evil bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the
0: Father okay think about the mind of Christ this is what Paul is asking to do and what you realize he gave himself up for her and this is what it took Paul says, this is what it took for Christ to give himself up for you, this Philippians passage. There's an active sense. His whole life had to be lived perfectly. Because if he was going to be a sacrifice, like as it says in Leviticus, it had to be a perfect animal. He had to be perfect. Um, He gave up the praise of heaven to dwell with us. You imagine, for all eternity, as long as they had angels, and even within the Trinity, they'd always been praise. There would always been songs to honor them for who they were, and it's a right way of honoring because of how great they are. And he willingly gives up that kind of praise to come live with us. Not only just live with us, but to be rejected by his own people people whom he had created because he'd been active in their conception people who owed their very existence to him because as part of as one of the god members of the godhead he gave them life and he sustained their life it wasn't simply a routine thing and it says they turned around and spat on him, and rejected him, and ridiculed him. He took on humanity. He became obedient through his whole life, even to the cross. Imagine being a sibling of Jesus. Your older brother, perfect, never does anything wrong, always listens to mom and dad. You know what I mean? When something goes wrong, you can't go, he did it, Jesus did it, Mary, Mom. And she'll say, are you kidding me? He doesn't do anything wrong. I mean, what what an example and what a model. do Do they still grade on the curve in here? Okay. Take all the test scores, you put it on a bell curve, and the middle gets a C. So you can get 50% and get a C, because you happen to be in the middle. You can get 80% and get an A, because you happen to be on one side. You can't say that about your, your older brother. There's no curve. And the person in a class who always gets 100 on the tests that always skews the bell curve over this way so you don't get the grade you think you should get. I mean, gets ostracized. Not that I would know that, that's for sure. But think of Jesus being perfect, not making one mistake. And people ridiculed him and rejected him. This is what he gave up, and his whole life had to be that way. 30, let's say 33 years of being perfect. We can't do it for five minutes. But he had to do it all that time, giving up the praise that was his. On the other side, it's a passive sense. Take, for instance, and we're talking, when we talk about this, we normally talk Holy Week. He orchestrated the events that led to the cross. It was he who said to his disciples, go get a donkey and put your cloaks on and give me praise as we go down that was an old testament prophecy that your king would come on a donkey and basically he was saying to all the people of jerusalem in the midst of the biggest festival i'm your king i'm your king and if these children don't praise me the stones will cry out because i'm the creator king they'll praise me he goes to the trials what happens at the trials he either is quiet Or he says the truth. And in saying the truth, you will see the Son of Man rising. They call it blasphemy, and they have their charge to lead him to the cross. He could have gotten 10,000 angels to come down and take care of him. Never called a one. I mean, if one angel, as we see in Kings, can destroy 180,000 warriors, what hope does a high priest of Jerusalem have against 10,000? Not even Rambo could stand up to that. <laughs> okay? He goes to the cross. He willingly goes to the cross. He willingly uh, is there. And he assumes on himself the wrath for our sin. He is a sacrifice, as Paul would say, he who knew no sin became sin that we might know the righteousness of God. He was abandoned by his own heavenly father in, in what way we really can't understand. But near the end of his six hours on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, Eloi Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? quoting Psalm 22, which is a perfect picture of the crucifixion. How is it that the Son, eternally with the Father, could bear the Father's wrath to the point where he says, Dad, where are you? And not for himself, but for people like us. And when it's finally over, right before... He dies. He says, it's finished. The price has been paid. And he means the whole price for the sins of the people I love. They're paid. Every one of them. Not only the ones you did in the past. Not only the ones you did today and might be doing right now. But the ones you do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. They're all paid for. And God does not bring back our sins to us. The prophet said, he throws them into the deepest part of the sea. And as one person said, he ain't got no fishing rod to get him back. You see what the sacrifice of Christ is? He tastes death. He's raised from the dead. But he does all that not for himself. But for us, Christ who owed, who came to pay a debt he did not owe, since we have a debt we cannot pay. That's why he gave himself. That's why I say, if you're if you're feeling condemned, it's either because Satan's doing a, a tap dance on you. And he wants you to think that your sin is so bad it's unforgivable. And you kind of look at him and say, no, 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 no. 2,000 years ago on a cross, it was forgiven. It's paid for in full. Or you haven't realized that he paid every sin and nothing, nothing is outside of what his sacrifice was about. See, that active, passive sense is how he gave himself up for us. If you go back to uh, Hosea, Hosea 3, 1-5, to 5, you can read it, where God told, tells him to go back and buy his wife in the auction block, which is exactly what Christ did for us. Why? Because he's the only one that could do it. And he has such an immense love for us You'd be willing to do. I don't know about you, but you know there' are some days I just don't want to be with people. I'm tired. I've had enough I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert at heart, and after a little while, like a Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, I run back to the house I throw I close the door to the bedroom and I just say, "Don't bother me, please." Do not and, disturb. Excuse me? Do not disturb. <laughs> Do not disturb. No, no, no. Don't even come close. <laughs> the lion will speak tonight. <laughs> <laughs> the lion will eat tonight. Um, we all have those times. Christ went through his whole life not that way. And still with you, he's, li- he's with you just that way. It's an amazing way. Quite frankly, that's an amazing husband. There are some days, I, I'm not gonna say it, it's unrecorded. I guess I will. Peg and I dated and I didn't realize something about her till we got married. and It was about one month into the marriage. She crunches ice. <laughs> I hate ice crunchers. <laughs> that drives me bananas she still crunches ice. And every time she crunches ice, I go, ugh. She's taught all of our kids and grandkids to crunch ice. (laughs) (laughs) Thanksgiving is the worst meal of the year because they're all there crunching ice. (laughs) That's just our nature, right? And there's some days I want to say, would you stop that? But that's part of who she is. I know her. That's the way she is. Gave himself up for her. Three, he sanctifies her. That's the future. Verse 26. Who'd like to read verse 26? I need a drink. Okay. Okay. The root of the word sanctify is to make holy here, to set apart. Uh, it is Israel was to be sanctified, to be set apart from the other countries that if they mingled would destroy her witness and would also destroy the, her relationship with God. She didn't. She mingled and she uh, ran after other gods. What the Christ does with us is help us to move in that realm of becoming set apart, holy, different, to have a different lifestyle. And go back; uh, you can read at the fourth chapter of Ephesians where he says, "Put off the old, the way you you, you used to live before you were." a follower of Christ. Be renewed in your mind and put on the new, which is the character of Christ. Imitate Christ. Um, That's what he's calling for. Uh, he, He sanctifies us from our sin, our rebellion against God, and a rebellious spirit that prompts that rebellion, where we like to do what we want to do. In fact, we love to do some things. And we don't want God saying, you can't do that. If you're a child of mine, that shouldn't be something you're doing. And we go, well, but I love it. No, we had kids that ate like that. You have to eat your broccoli. I don't like broccoli. Uh-huh. you have to eat your broccoli and then one of them we found out would take it and stuff it underneath the counter and it would fall down on the floor behind the counter and we found it when we were moving and cleaning out the house what? big gob of green stuff put on the haz- hazardous mask and the closet <laughs> <laughs> but see that's just a rebellious and, and it's, it's multiplied in us in different ways in who we are He sanctifies us from death. When we look at death, we don't look at at a termination of this life. We look at it at the doorway, going into a far better life. That this is simply a preview, and it's not even a very good preview, of what it's going to be like on the other side of death. We worship Christ, but we worship Christ not perfectly. On the other side of death, we worship him without any hindrance. Who knows, when we get to heaven, you may even see me raise my hands and worship. You won't see it me now. May No. This is what he's doing. We don't have to fear death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's what we really want as his people. And then also sanctify us from the devil. We get to know what the enemy who desires to rob, kill, and destroy. We get to know his modus operandi, his emo. And we can now say, get away. You, don't, you know, you have no hold over me because I have been bought with a price. I am Christ. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a child of God. I'm no longer living in the realm of your darkness. I live in the kingdom of Christ and he no longer should have hold on us. He does because we allow it, but he no longer should have. For what reason does he sanctify us? So that we can be made holy. And finally, that we will be um, cleansed by the washing of water that we may love him more, that we might serve him in his kingdom and that uh, we may be beneficial to God in this life. We have been rescued and we are now God's workmanship to do things that he has already prepared beforehand for us to do. That's a a paraphrase of Ephesians 2.10. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. See, We have a life that God has set out for us and things to do. And if we don't use what God has given to us, the whole kingdom suffers from it. We are remodeling our house. Horrible decision. Uh, why we did that. But, you know, things never go together perfectly. And so you have to kind of scrape them mold. But th- we also know that if you left something out, our bathroom would be in real trouble. So we had to make sure that everything got in there the way it was supposed to be. You have opportunities to serve God wherever you find yourself. He's given you abilities to use. He shows you how to use them. Or he has people come up alongside of you and say, I think you can do this. Go ahead and do it. And as you begin to exercise it, the kingdom of Christ is built and grows. And if you don't, it's that much weaker. That much smaller, and he's, he is preparing you, and he is setting you apart, making you holy, so you could do the work. It doesn't have to be done perfectly. None of nothing we do is perfect, but it is something that he uses to accomplish what he wants. Okay. How's he sanctify? Cleanses you. Oh, this, this this word cleansing is beautiful. Verse twenty-six. It's an action word. Because it goes back to a time before you had daily showers and baths. You know, there was a time in northern Europe you took a bath once a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was in May. That's why you have June brides, because that's the, <laughs> <I'm> not honest. <laughs> because that's the only time they smelled good. <laughs> once a year. Okay, wedding ceremony in uh, in Israel it began with a cleansing. I mean, the betrothal, patrol, but when it came to that time to start the seven-day uh, festival, the bride and groom would take baths, not together, separately. <laughs> oh, wow. And then they would get dressed up in their wedding clothes. And the groom would go to the bride's house and call her out, and then they would walk back to the place of the wedding which had a canopy that was symbolic of the wedding bed. And the whole idea is you were clean and cleansed and then you gave your vows. And then you consummated the wedding. This cleansing is a whole idea of being prepared and you're getting ready for the wedding. Um, we do it in our day and age. You get, you get engaged and then you think about the date and then you begin to put together all the things and then you realize how much money you're spending. And then you're saying, why don't we just elope? And then, but there's a lot of preparation that takes place for a wedding. That's what cleansing is, it's, it's getting prepared. And there's a twofold cleansing that takes place. One is justification where god declares you clean because of the actions of christ his perfect life his perfect death on your behalf god imputes what christ has done to your life that is he pays a penalty for your sin but then he goes the next step and he takes the righteousness that christ has done and he puts it on your life so that you are not only in being declared forgiven Your bank account's not only zero with God, it's the full riches of Christ. You are a billionaire. I mean, Bill Gates has nothing on you before God being justified. And in the wedding ceremony, you utter your vows, you make that commitment, and all of a sudden, two people become one unit. You don't become one. You never lose your personality. You never lose your idiosyncrasies. You never lose your ability to crunch ice. (laughs) But you are together, one unit. And then comes the process of sanctification, which is to purge the presence of sin out of you, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It demands our cooperation. You have to obey, die to yourself, change the patterns of life. you know you have to obey which is really the essence of love love is more than simply a hallmark channel movie if you've ever seen those
1: miss <laughs> ah, Wright,
0: mr Wright, <laughs> and all, all about emotion love is obedience love is helping love is sacrificing love is giving and that's what it's meant You die to yourself. I've found it this way. Jesus puts self in front of denial, not in front of esteem. You give up yourself. When you get married, in some ways you give up yourself. Uh, There's times I had to give up golf. Having four kids and then seven kids, it wasn't right that I went out and played golf for four hours when she was back home with all the kids. Well, it may have been right, but I heard about it when I got home. You give up some of your, your goals and dreams for the sake of the unit. You, uh, you change the patterns of living. You desire to please the other person more than you get to please yourself. That's part of what self-denial is all about. Um, Look at this as as marriage. It's a process of uniting. You take your vows, you then begin to work to keep them. You learn about each other, you learn how to help, and you learn how to be one unit. So that when Junior wants to play the game of mommy versus daddy, because he wants something, And he comes up to Daddy, and he says, Daddy, 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 can I have such and such? Daddy is smart enough to go and say, Honey, Junior wants this. Do you think this is a good idea? And if Mommy says, I'm not too sure this is a good idea, Daddy doesn't say, oh, go do it. Uh They say, well, probably not a good idea, Junior. Go back to your room. (laughs) Shut up and be quiet. No. (laughs) (laughs) The whole idea is that there's a cooperation and you, you learn how to deal with one another. It's the same thing Christ is doing with his church, with us. We learn how to deal with a perfect husband. We learn what it is to say, yes, Lord and not make that an oxymoron yes lord whatever you want that's it we learn his character we learn his his way of doing things and it goes back to the word and the spirit and fellowship and all of that but he's cleansing us he's sanctifying us and on his part he nourishes us again It's like a parent with a child. When you have a child, you don't put the diaper on them, stick them in the middle of the floor and say, grow up.
1: Learn to walk.
0: (laughs) You have to nourish them. You have to take care of them. You have to train them. When they get older, you train them how to do things and how to to care for other people. You teach them relationships. Uh, Christ does that with us all the time. He also cherishes us. Part of marriage is what? Forsaking all others, I take you as my wife or as my husband, and you forsake all others. Uh, In our day and age, that gets real difficult for some people. Um, They forget that part of what marriage is, to cherish the other person, to think more highly of the other person than you do yourself and want to help them more than anything else. Let me let me talk to you a little bit about how much Christ loves you. Once more, just to bring it back home. You know, you know what I found? It's real easy to say I love you to a woman who looks nice, dresses nice, is cultured has good breath, <laughs> white teeth, and is pleasant to be with. More than once a year. Excuse me? Showered more than once a year. Showered
2: more than does. once a year, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Daniel.
0: <laughs> Sometimes twice a day. Oh, <laughs> It's much more difficult to say I love you to a person who has foul breath, disfigured, who is uncouth, horrible manners, who shows no kind of consideration for another person. But you see, Christ doesn't come to the lovely people. Come, He comes to the people everybody else rejects and says to them in their state, I love you. And I'm in the process of making you look like that. That's how he nourishes and cherishes you. So every time you think you're ugly, he says, no, 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 no. To me, you're beautiful. You're gorgeous. You are the loveliest person I have ever seen. He also says it to the church as a whole, which is really difficult because you look at the church in America or north in Europe. It's not lovely at all. But he says, no, it's my church. And I'm trying to make you to be what you're meant to be. Okay. Last page. Then you can wake up. Uh, last thing, present some himself- ourselves in pleasure. That's the glorification part where there'll be no presence of sin, no power of sin. It's not going to be any room for complaining in heaven. I think that's great. Although it's not going to occur until the Lord returns and sets all things right. That's the future. That's what we have to look forward to. You know, you think about it. I make it through today. I make it through tomorrow. I make it through this life. And the life on the other side is so tremendous. Everything I suffer here seems like nothing compared to the reward of there. Five hundredth anniversary of the Reformation. You you remember hearing that somewhere? As long as I'm around, you're going to hear it all the time. Uh (laughs) Two guys, Latimer. I'm forgetting the other guy's name. Ridley and and Latimer. They were friends in England. They got they ran afoul of the church. The church decided to bring them up on charges. Said they were heretics. Said you were going to burn. They tied the two of them to the same post, put the wood around them, lit the wood. And one of them turned to the other and says, sing loudly, friend. This is a temporary fire. We are going to eternal glory. And they sang praises to God. I don't know about you. I hate to get burnt. Imagine your whole body, and yet you can say, I can't wait. Because this is my way of getting from here to there. You see, they had that mindset. He himself will show us in splendor. Um, church's reaction to Christ on our side. We talked off and on about this. You go back to the original wedding, Genesis 2, someone 18 through 25. So I'm going to read that. Okay. All the animals are before Adam, nothing fits. God decides, I'm gonna make someone who is a helpmate, or a helpmeet, as the old King James, which means a partner, a collaborator. Someone who will be alongside, and together they will be one, a unit, and they will be able to do what they want to do. That's... That's what uh, Eve was to Adam. No wonder when he said, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she'll be called, whoa, man, because she's taken out of man. Because he recognized, this is the one who compliments me. We can work together. Didn't last long, but we can work together. (laughs) But that's who we are. But on her part, as Paul says, it's called a respect, to know Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished, and to appreciate him, to know his character, to spend your whole lifetime learning and growing in your appreciation of who he is. Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was n- almost 19 years old. I'd gone to church whole life, went through Sunday school, youth group, sat in services, but uh, the Spirit never got a hold of me until I was almost 19 years old. Reading a copy of Good News for Modern Man, New Testament and New English, and saw who Christ was, and recognized the love that God had for me in Him, and my heart just sank, I just said, I have to do what Romans 10 says, confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that He is the Lord. And I would be rescued. That appreciation after that moment just kept growing and growing and growing. And there are times when we're singing. There are times when I'm doing my devotions. I just sit back and think about what I would be like if it weren't for Christ. And the difference he's made in my life. And I'm absolutely amazed that he would do anything with a person like me. And I appreciate it more and more and more. And I learn to grow learn learn more about him every every time I study. If I'm diligent and careful. I don't know about you, but I can read through my devotionals, my my Bible read. Close the book and say, What did I read? Yes. <laughs> you know, hey, there are days like that for all of us, even when you have REV in front of your name. But you get to learn and appreciate him more and more, what he can do and who he is. To live out of that respect, to praise him. Best thing a wife can do for a husband is to know who he is and what his strengths and weaknesses are and then to praise him for his strengths. Forget the weaknesses. Peg did not marry her father. Her father could do anything he wanted in building and fixing. You give me a hammer to knock down a wall. That's it, okay? I don't work well that way. And she graciously never reminds me of that. But she reminds me of my strengths. You, re, you remind, you get to know Christ, and you praise him for his strengths. He doesn't have any weaknesses, so it's quite easy then. Okay? And you allow the Spirit to work within, within us. Uh, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit who is within you. And when you grumble, and when you're not thankful, and you're not... In, building that relationship with Christ you're grieving the Holy Spirit and you don't respect him as much but the more you get empowered by the Spirit the more you respect Christ the more you adore him and the more you want to say thanks to him for who he is and finally to cooperate with his plan and build in kingdom building um, not to hamper him How many of you know the Lord's Prayer? How many of you pray the Lord's Prayer? Okay. What's that one part near the beginning of the Lord's Prayer?
2: Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: You know what you're asking? Do your work. Not just the work you do in heaven, but do it on earth. And basically you're saying, through me. Now, if you just rotely say that, you don't think about it. But you want to be a part of building the kingdom. How do you build a kingdom on a campus? How do you build a kingdom in the family? I mean, that's part of what Greg's teaching you and talking to you about. But respecting and your reaction to crisis, I want to be somebody who builds that kingdom and spend my life doing that. I wanna learn something to do and where I am, when I have an opportunity, I want to help build that kingdom. It may be sharing Christ, it may be comforting somebody, it may simply be the best dentist there has ever been. That people love to go to you because you're such a superior dentist. The only one where people love to go to you, okay? But that's building the kingdom. That's part of all the work. And when you respect Christ, you say, let me in on that, let me do that. Uh, and to be sensitive to what the Spirit wants to do in and through you. There is a charge that I usually end a service with and uh, we can end with that because it's now 8.30. The time is over. Aren't you glad? (laughs) The time is over. It goes this way. It was was developed by a chaplain of the Senate. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you find yourself, God has called you there. And Christ, who who lives in you, wants to do something through you where you are. Think about that. The next time you're at line in Myers checking out and that poor person by the, well, well, either the person who's overwatching the 12-item fast lane or the one who's checking you out. What can I say or do to them that would make their day? I like to crack jokes if you haven't figured that out. So I figure out something to say to them just to help them, okay? But God has placed me and that person together for that moment. How can you do that with your professors? Those mean, nasty people who don't give you A's. (laughs) okay? How can you bless them? Because God has given them to you to help build the kingdom, see? That's what it is to respect Christ and his call to you. Oh, if you've got questions, we can take a few questions. Yeah. How long is McDonald's open? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I that's our coffee. Oh, so the better is which Okay, next week, Greg will be back. Thanks, Mr. Andy. Uh, Thank you for being attentive. None of you fell asleep. <laughs> but that's okay, because I had Jeff with a spit watch who's going to wake you up right
1: no, I don't get one of those little balls, the little things that they used to use to go around new, and tickle new. people or bang them on the earth. No, Pastor Greg recommended a Nerf gun, you know, those water blasters. No, no, that's no, how the deacon just sprang. To little, little
0: slingshot yeah. that nobody knows about. Okay, let's close with prayer. Well, Lord, we have learned from you how much you love us. More than we ever can comprehend, and yet enough that we know how precious and beautiful you are. We also have learned how we are to love you and respect you and live for you. More than we probably can do, and yet with your spirit, enough for what you want us to do. We thank you for Granting to us what we did not deserve and never deserve. And we thank you for calling us to do what brings honor and glory to you. Allow us, O Lord, to make that part of your prayer come true. Your kingdom would come on earth as it does in heaven. Thank you for the attentiveness of this group and the time together. Bless us on our way home.